So we're lesson one in course, which is called What Is. Okay. So this is very exciting for me to call, teach because uh, this is the real McCoy. <laughs> this is the deep stuff. This is what inspires us in Yeshiva. This is, uh, you know, we taught, we teach Kabbalah, we teach uh, self-help. Last course was a very self-help one and, and communication and history and emotion, uh, ideas of character development and so on and so forth. But this course, we teach mysticism, but this is what, this is our bread and butter. This is Hasidic philosophy. This is what we spent hours in yeshiva learning. And really, you'll learn the engine that motivates us, how we see and view the world based on the lesson of this course. And if you like to say what the um, perspective and therefore the, 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 the success of Chabad around the world is the messages of this, le- of this course. So we start with something that probably... Many of you uh, would have thought about when you were teenagers and young adults. Right now, we got bigger issues to deal with: paying bills, um, health, uh, children, family, um, and so on and so forth. But sometimes, to be able to, to get through those challenges, we have to go back to what you probably thought of when you didn't have much problems. <laughs> All you could think of is reality real or is it not real? You know, the, the story of the Chinese. Uh, Chinese philosopher who dreamt one day that he was a butterfly. And the rest of his life he was always wondering, am I a philosopher who dreamt about a butterfly, or am I a butterfly who's dreaming that I'm a philosopher? So these are, you know, the, there's the famous uh, Plato um, and book, the, the Cave. Um, a lot of this has been made into popular movies. Uh, the Matrix, um, I believe, which I did see. Then there's this one I didn't see. Something the Truman Show, right? So it's it's all a question of is reality real? And then we were gonna go. We're gonna go through a number of perspectives of how we view reality. Actually, four, four major perspectives of how we view reality. And these perspectives are gonna be like a ladder. So we're gonna go from one rung to the next to the next. Okay, so. I think this is noisy. Think a little about that. All right. So we'll show the, uh, I guess, the lesson video. Oh, we could live without it, but. They spent their lives chained in a dark cave, facing a large stone slab, and unable to turn their heads. Far behind their backs, their captors pass objects in front of a furnace, causing shadows to fall upon the stone slab before their prisoners' eyes. These moving shadows are all that the cave people know. In their imaginations, the shadows have names lives and stories of their own and are independent creations that move as they desire. 
This, in brief, is the allegory of the cave, composed by Plato in the 4th century BCE. To demonstrate that humans cannot rely on their senses to determine the nature of reality. Only by philosophical thought alone, argued Plato, can true reality become known. A solitary jar sits on a shelf in a lab. The jar contains a human brain in solution, attached to wires that trail to nearby computers. Electrical signals simulate real-life experiences so that the brain continues to experience the life it knew when it was inside a human body. It sees, hears, and senses its person eating, sleeping, chatting, and going on summer vacation. It can even imagine. The only thing impossible for it to accept is the possibility that it might be a disembodied brain in a jar. Luckily, this is only a theoretical experiment of American philosopher Gilbert Harmon, although one cannot be certain that he is not such a brain, because he would never know the difference. What is reality? How real is it? And why does it matter? After all, this is the world we live in, and this is the life we live. So what difference does it make if it's real or not? What this it's all right. Okay. So, what does Torah say about reality? Is it real or not? So, um, let's see. The first verse in the Torah is what? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? So, don't we have a clear answer, right? Is that a clear answer? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Like we see here in text number two. <coughs> so, the rest of Torah, of course, tells us how to live our life. Um, in this reality, that is the world we know. Um, right? Yeah, we have another verse. Verse three. So verse 3 is as follows. That's verse 2. That's reading 2. And that's 3. You have been shown to know that God is God. There is none else beside Him. It's actually in this coming week's portion. The Torah portion of this week. This is the reading. We're going to read it in this portion. So, none else besides Him. Ein od milvado. What does that mean? None else beside him. What does that mean? No other being like him. That's no other being like him? Mm-hmm. That would have said, none other being be like him. Only God exists. Only God exists. That's what it sounds like, right? Anyone? No other God besides God. There's no other God besides God, which is the traditional way that many people translate it. But the words... There's no other God. 
doesn't say there's no other God. This is there's no nothing else. Ain od means nothing else. Okay. That's for the implication. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's that's it. Seems what it says. So let's resolve these two statements. It says Vreshas Baralikim. The beginning, God creates, <coughs> and it says there's nothing else besides Him. So which one is it? Now, first, let's define reality. What does it mean when we say real? Anyone? What do we mean when we say something is real? Something we touch. Touch? That's a sense of touch. So if you don't touch it, it's not real? If we understand it, it's not real? If we feel it in our emotions, it's not real? Yeah. We look for objective evidence. Outside objective evidence. Okay. Very good. It's not purely in your mind. It's not purely in your mind. Okay. So it corresponds to something outside you. Corresponds to something. Okay. Um, so the reason I said that is because it might be something abstract. So it might be something about something mathematical. Um, and so that would be something which other people could, um, you know, other minds besides yours could, could perceive. So then it's real. Well, it's not purely in your mind. Like, okay. Like so, it's not subjective, you're saying. It's, it's objective. That's in a sense what Michelle says, right? Let's look. Let's let's look at the dictionary. Figure one point one. Your book. It's in your book. It's number four, page four. Reality is a noun, the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. Sorry? The whole thing gets tied up in circular arguments here. As they actually exist. You you can argue around the circular This is what it means, right? What's the word when we say real, reality? This is what we we think it means, right? Um, or f- okay, but it is, but it isn't. It isn't, and isn't. Okay, from a philosophical perspective, we see here number two: existence that is absolute, self-sufficient, or objective, and not subject to human decisions or conventions. It is this. It is the truth that has allowed science to come up with medicine, right? That's how does science come up with medicines that actually heal people? Only by observing ob, what, what they would call objective truths, objective realities. How does science able to to send a rocket into space and land the person on the moon? Only not not with theory. <laughs> That's real. Real science has to take. Um, has to see the world and see the the um, parameters of the world in a in a in a very real way. That's how you create antibiotics and computers and airplanes. Um, so this is what we call critical thinking. 
enables us to do to achieve this. Okay, does that make sense so far? Sorry, sorry. So far, makes sense. Okay, but it's not a simple task. Why? Because by our nature, we are programmed to misread realities as well. Right? We don't. We don't. Our eyes deceive us. And we have come up with these incorrect theories routinely. So let me take an optical illusion for as an, as for an, as an example. You have in your book, page 5. So there's a box there with an A and then that box with a B. Which is the darker one? It looks like A is darker. Very good. That was the correct answer. Not that A is darker. It looks like A is darker. <laughs> I would say is the correct answer. Sorry? But B's in the shadow. Ah, oh, an architect is able to... Uh... So it seems here that A is darker, right? Now, but let's look at this next one. Now which one is darker? Officially, it's meant to be the same. If you take your a piece of paper in your book even, right? In page six. Put a piece of paper on either side of the gray lines. Look at it then. Yes, it's uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Take a piece of paper on either side. Oh, doesn't work here. <laughs> I'm not blocking anything. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, put your hands. A piece of paper is even better. Then it looks like what? It seems the same. So what happened here? And what Stephen said is correct. The A is a dark square, right? Um, uh, a B is the light in the shadow. It's a lighter square in the shadow, so it looks lighter. But it's in the shadow, whereas A is not in the shadow. Any event, the point of the matter is that when we see it, everyone would say that A is darker. But in reality, it isn't. It's called an optical illusion. <coughs> Why is it? Because B is the in the in the is the lighter square, even though it's in the darker shade. Our mind translates in us; it must be lighter, and therefore that's how we see it. So we're actually seeing things, right? We see things. As lighter because that's how our eye translates it to us. Because we're seeing it in the lighter square. So, so just the color in our mind. Or a better or simpler example, a placebo. You all heard of placebos. And, and people actually get healed from taking placebos because in their mind they think they're taking proper medication. 
Ah, yes. Blue or gold and gold and blue, whatever. But that was different. That was actually not objectively one way or another. The laurel and, for example, the sound. Laurel and uh, Yanni. But that, that, that's a little bit different because that actually lends itself to two different translations. So some people actually, if you heard it on one frequency was this, you heard it on another frequency was that. And they were both true. Hear it differently. But you wouldn't say objectively it was one way or another. Here, they're actually the same sight. But we translate it because of the optical illusion. We translate it differently. So that's why this is a better uh, example for what we're trying to say. Um, So... So what we need to do is to learn how to um, distinguish between reality and perception and deal with it, things, each thing in, in its own terms. So what conclusions can we come to at, the mo- at, the, at this moment? Tentative conclusions, right? When we say real, when we say real, we say, look at, look at figure number uh, 1.3. Perception doesn't change reality. Right? Perception does. The fact that it seems that uh, B is lighter doesn't make it fact. Okay? Uh, so, sorry, reality doesn't change based on our perception of it. Yeah, that's what we just said. Yeah. Reality doesn't change based on perception of it. Therefore, we must conform to reality. Right? Our perception doesn't matter. There's reality, scientific reality, etc., which is the way that people saw the world for for hundreds of years. There's science; it's absolutely true, and we have to therefore fit into the scientific reality. Correct? Is that the way the world was seen for a long time? Yes. Well, with science, science is all about measuring approximations of reality and getting closer and closer to it. It's never reality. It's just well, close to the close approximations. Because it doesn't have the full story. Hmm. But it wants to get to the full story and it hopes to get to the full story. And if it's it has the full story... It's a goal that can never be reached. Well, that's the question. Can it never be reached? Um, that's maybe a new insight. We'll get to that in a moment. I'm talking about originally, we always would think that's, that's the ultimate, that's the goal, to reach that truth. And this is indeed, success in life depends on learning, right? So, accept reality. And success in life depends on learning effective strategies within the confines of reality. What? Right? Some escapists want to leave reality. Yeah, but that, but that doesn't make yeah, sense yeah. within reality, right? Um, so we will call this the world's worldly reality perspective. And what the implication, implications of this are. But so far, are you with me? If you don't, let, ask the question, but I think it's so far it's straightforward. Is it just a majority rules kind of thing that if the majority of people say that's real, then it's real? No, 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 not at all. We're saying there is objective reality. 
And if that's, if that is, there's certain, obviously areas of life that is not that way because you can't figure it out. But there are certain things that, that, that one could be quite clear, objective realities. Someone's still there to open the door? <coughs> no, I don't think they're here, they're at the front, front. Ah, is that sound real? So, okay. Gotta get moving. So we can say that the limits, okay, now, this reality from a scientific perspective has to have limitations, right? In other words, there's the concept of predictability. That if we were able to, those who would argue, that if we were able to to know the exact um, location and all the details of the of the nature of something, we would be able to predict every single event in 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 life. This is what science thought at a certain time, right? That if we were able to predict, know everything about all the aspects of the world, then we could predict the weather. <laughs> we could predict. Everything that's going to take place and happen. Right? That was the perspective. Um, and this was a core foundation of science. And actually what is what helped us make the planes and the computers and the antibiotics and so on. And in a sense, the fact that the laws of nature are fixed is actually a religious perspective as well. What do we learn from the concept, right, that um, here's a text number four, a reading from Rabbeinu Nisim Girondi. It says, God's desire and will is to maintain the way of the world wherever possible. Nature is precious in God's eyes and he does not change it unless it is absolutely necessary. So that is even if it runs afoul of the laws of the Torah. What do I mean by that? So this is the next reading. Uh, I'll say it out loud. I'll say it at home. If someone steals, and let's say he steals a bushel of wheat, and he plants it, will it grow? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll grow. If, if there's a, um, a couple, let's say a married woman, has an affair, could she get pregnant? Sure. Sure. How come? The, the thief, the the adulterer. How how are they able to create life and 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 benefit from something that's against God's world? The answer is because God doesn't interfere in the laws of nature. So that from a Jewish perspective, as well. Laws of nature are the laws of nature. We don't ignore it. We have to take it into account. 
even if you've done the wrong thing, that's not going to change the laws of nature because of it. This is this perspective now, okay? Um, so, what this might be called is the deterministic view of the world. Right? That we could, deter- as we said earlier, we could determine everything that might happen in the world if we know all the information that 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 there is to know, we can then determine everything that might happen. The problem is we don't have that information. We don't know about every particle and every 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 aspect that exists. Therefore, we can't. But should we, could we, and eventually, if we, when we can, we'll be able to determine everything. But is that correct? So, on the one hand, seeing the world from this perspective... Um, Seeing the world from this perspective gives us a certain stability, right? <laughs> We're in the master of our reality, correct? That's what you might think. However, there's a few problems with this, this, this perspective. What are the problems with this deterministic world view of the world? What do you think? We don't always know everything. We don't know. Not only don't we know, it's not knowable. Science today, we have chaos theory, right? Uh, Heidingsberg's uh, um, uh, uncertainty principle. Heisenberg's uh, rather uh, uncertainty principle, correct? Quantum physics. Quantum physics. What, what do they say? That it's unknowable even. So if that's the case... If it's, so if that's the case, we will never have this... This, uh, this can't, can't be the case, right? In addition... More importantly, from a, from a, from a person's perspective, from each person's perspective, um, it kind of, it would make us feel like a cog in a wheel, right? We're a cog in this whole machine, and in a sense, we don't have free choice. The deterministic perspective, uh, the deterministic universe tells us we don't have free choice. Everything is determined. Sorry? What does it matter how we feel? Yeah, we're talking about uh, what's the problem with seeing it this way. We're talking about seeing reality. It shouldn't determine how you Okay. But we, we sense deeply, we sense that it's not right. We sense that we have moral decisions to make. Right? We sense that within, deep within ourselves. So we're, we're, we sense that it can't be correct. This world view, right, this... this uh, Worldly, reali- worldly reality that we, how we see the world, we sense we're very uncomfortable with it, or we should be, because it goes again. Then there's no point. There's no point to anything in life. There's no free choice. There's no based on this. There's no free choice. Everything just is determined. Yeah, there are people who reach that conclusion. That's correct, and that's right. That's the, and that's the conclusion you have from the worldly. Reality perspective. Right? You with me? The, the conclusion from this perspective, the deterministic universe perspective, is there that there's no free choice, that everything is determined, and because, because you know, you, your entire upbringing, everything that is all determined by how your parents were brought up, and by, by the people you're going to meet, etc., etc. 
So there's no really free choice in, in, in take the broader perspective of how this way of seeing the world is. This way of seeing reality is. Okay? And then, the other point, as we said earlier, so this is from a more emotional, subjective perspective. From an object, objective perspective, science itself is saying that this is not possible. Right? Science today, with the chaos theory and um, uncertainty principle, is saying that this is not, this is not, you can't know, it's unknowable. Doesn't change the fact. Okay. No, but it's not because, no. It's not that it's, you don't know it. It's unknowable, which means that it changes. Right. What's the, uh, I mean, without getting into the science of it, that the observation of something changes it. Right? One thing, if you know one thing, then, then the other aspect of it you don't know. And if you know that other aspect, you know nothing about the first aspect. And that's usually the position and the velocity. momentum or velocity. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's move along. That's correct. The universe is a web of cause and effect relationships. And that's what's defined. And why does it take away free choice? You, you still make a decision on what you're going to do. Then. No, but your decision is the cause and effect of everything that happened in your life until this point. Well, there's a lot of different possibilities. You still have choice. But every 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 possibility brought you to the choice you're going to make. That's the argument. That's the theory. That all, all your life experiences and everything that happened till now is going to make you make this choice, whichever choice it will be. But it's not real. Well, it's not really free choice because you're 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 programmed to make that choice. Is it's up to the, the the character you have. It's up to your upbringing. It's, it depends on your personality. All that's going to lead you to make the choices you're going to make. If that's the case, it's not really free choice. That's the argument there. Okay, let's move along. Um, yeah. So now King David says the following. Fascinating. King David, we say this in Hallow. Look at text 6. This is a part of Hallow. King David says like this. Okay. That are, they're idols of silver and gold, the handiwork of man. They have a mouth, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have a nose, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. They do not communicate with their throat. Like them shall be those who make them, all who trust in them. Israel, however, trusts in God. He is their help and protector. What is King David saying? King, King David, in a sense, is speaking, is speaking about idolatry, right? And the, those who <coughs> worship these items that, have no, that, are, that, is, that are soulless are like it which is basically speaking about the deterministic model. That's what the King David is basically speaking about. Could you say that again, please? The King David is speaking about those who see the world as as things, as um, items that don't have a soul. Right? right? That they, they see the world as, I mean, it's like you go into a wax museum. Like you go... Going to a wax museum, and it could sometimes look better than the original. But it's still a wax 
This is how you see in the world. You're seeing the world as a wax museum, in a sense. This is the idea of idolatry. Idolatry is seeing the world as soulless beings. This is the deterministic view of reality. It's soulless. That's the modern way, modern translation of idolatry. <coughs> okay? Let's move along. So now, I want to, uh, we're going to move on to the next, to the next level, but first, how do we get to the next level? So here, here's what we got to do. You see figure 1.4. Does any of you ever, have, have any of you ever seen this nine dot challenge? Have any of you ever seen it? You have? Okay, so if you have, don't, don't uh, spill the beans. But if you haven't, what I'd like you to do is take a pen. And what you need to do is with four straight lines, four straight lines, you will touch every, every uh, dot. Okay, make four straight lines and you want to be able to touch with four lines every dot. I'll give you a minute. No, they have to connect to each other. Four lines without without lifting your pen from the paper. Okay, sorry. You're not lifting your pen from the paper, and you start. You want it with four lines. Four lines touch every dot. Four straight lines. Sorry? No, you don't have to worry about that. Is it possible to do? It's possible. Has anyone done it? You've done it? No, I haven't done it, but I've seen it. Oh, if you've seen it, don't don't tell anyone. I want to see if those who haven't seen it. Are you supposed to lift your pen or not? No. Don't lift your pen? No. Okay. Anyone? All right. Okay. So let's see. Some of you might have tried this, right? Yeah. Didn't work. Try this. Didn't work. Try this. <laughs> Missing a dot. Okay. So let's try it. Let's see. I think outside the box. There you go. This is a very uh, powerful message in itself, right? Got to learn to think outside the box. <laughs> because what happened here? No one told you you can't go outside the box. Yeah. Did anyone tell you you can't go outside the box? Right. No one. But you just thought yeah. <laughs> that you have to remain within the confines of the box. That is the story of life. We so often create our own limitations. When we have so much more to offer, we have so much more in, in our life that we're able to achieve and grow, but we put a box around ourselves and we don't think we can get around out of it. They can just put the nine lines in a row. 
dots in a, in, in a row? No, you have to use those dots. I gave you the dots. But if you put the dots in a row, it's only one line. Yeah, but the dots were there beforehand. But there wasn't a box. There were dots. Okay. So, our default assumptions about the world lead us to, to, to create limits and boundaries that trample, that, that trap and stifle us. So, what our goal is today is to remove these imagined limits, which will allow us to live our life in a much more fuller extent. Okay? So you have three people who are viewing the Grand Canyon. So one guy is a rabbi. He sees, he sees the Grand Canyon. He says, oh, how masterful is your work, O oh God. Next one is a geologist. And he says, the, look at this diversity of the rock strata could tell us different uh, ages of geology that we're seeing in this, uh, in this canyon. <coughs> and the uh, rancher looks and says, wow, what a place to lose a, horde of ca- a herd of cattle. <laughs> so we each have our own perspective. They're different perspectives, right? You know, the, this one I've told in the past, um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Go, go camping. And uh, as they're lying down to sleep, um, Sherlock, uh, Sherlock Holmes says to Watson, what do you see? They're lying there. What do you see? He says, I see, well, from a meteor, uh, from, from an astronomical perspective, I see the, 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 different, the different patterns of the different uh, planets. And from a... Um, from the perspective of a meteorological perspective, I see that tomorrow is going to be a beautiful day. And from a religious perspective, I see the vastness of the universe. <coughs> what do you see, Holmes? Holmes says, I see someone stole our tent. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, different perspectives. So what we're going to do is four different perspectives on reality. That's, that's what we're going to go through tonight. So, um, the first one we did already. First one is the worldly reality. The second one is the perspective we call the creation reality. Okay. So we'll have the worldly reality, then we'll go off the wrong to the creation reality, then we're going to speak about the godly reality. And then we'll speak about what we call the unified reality. And we'll explain it when we get there. So, our question is, is the world real? So, from the perspective of the world of reality, what's the answer? From the world of reality, is the world real? Yeah, of course. The world is real. It has these parameters. It's real. It has its limitations. And you have to fit into those limitations. So from the worldly reality perspective, very simple. If God tells you one thing, and the world tells you another, which one do you take? From a worldly reality perspective, the world. Right? If God tells, very, let's make it very real. If, if, um, in order to, 
to make money, you need to not be fully honest, you need to cut corners, then from the worldly reality perspective, you might say, okay, it's my only choice. I got no other way to earn a living. If I don't cut corners, it's not gonna, I'm not going to make it. Right? Make sense? That's what you're going to say from worldly reality. If if I need to make earn a living and I have a coffee shop, and the busiest day for the coffee shop is, Shab- is Shabbos, Saturday, then I have no choice but to be open on, sh- on the Saturday because otherwise I'm not going to be able to make. That's the world of reality, right? That's the reality most of us living in. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's the reality most of us think we're living in. <laughs> Remember the box. <laughs> okay. Uh, so. Um, but we said earlier that the laws of nature themselves tell us that A, they're not absolute and they conflict with the idea of free choice. What is the creation reality? So let's go back. We, we, we mentioned earlier the, the, um, we mentioned earlier the first, first verse in the Torah. It's in the beginning God created heaven and earth. So what does that mean? So there's many... Th- um, Is that like natural or nature? No, it means God created heaven and earth. That's what we're saying. The first verse in the Torah, which is on our Oren Kodesh, on the new Oren Kodesh, one of the verses is, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. What does created mean? Bring something into existence. Okay, so you have those who believe in creation. In a sense, science believes in a creation a certain way, like Big Bang Theory. But there's something that that's that started the whole creation, right? When we say, in from a Jewish perspective, what does creation mean? Something from nothing. Okay, there's a story of a scientist. Okay, who came to to heaven. It says, God, we came up. We're able to create ourselves. We know how you did it. You took a bunch of clay and uh, you formed a man and you made him live. We could do the same. So God says, yeah, let's see. So he goes and he collects dust and he says, no, 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 no. You create your own dust. <laughs> right? Don't take my dust. Make your own dust. See if you could do that. A vacuum Once you have a particle, it's not nothing. Yeah, I know. But uh, a vacuum isn't. Um, a vacuum is also something. Yeah, because. It's a space. Yeah, yeah, space. But uh, from empty space, completely devoid of everything, so far, I find there's radiation coming out of. So, where's the radiation come from? So that's your that's your substance that it's co- that it's coming from. From a Jewish perspective, however, Veresh's Baral Akim means look at text number seven. God creating all creations out of absolute nothingness. The only word that we have in Hebrew to describe the creation of something from nothing is Bara. The word Bara means that it was created ex nihilo. We call it absolute nothing. Okay? So now,
What does it say? Why are things the way they are? Because that's the way God wanted it to be. If God created some, every, the whole world, something from nothing, so therefore, everything is, why is everything the way it is? Because God created it that way. That's the way God wanted it. You with me? Okay. What are the implications? What are the implications of the created reality? There wasn't a past before that? Yes. But a practical implication today. On the question we asked earlier. If God created the world, so the world doesn't contradict God. From the world of reality, it contradicts God. But if God creates the world, how could the world contradict him? Or, let's put it rather this way. You know, take a subject completely different. We showed a, a film here, Whose Land? And Whose Land presents what? Presents the fact that the legalities of Israel, right? The, the legal rights of Israel to the land. It comes out of the League of Nations, etc. I find that there's a problem with that. What's the problem? If the rights of the Jewish people to Israel is because the League of Nations gave them that right, the same League of Nations of the UN could take it away. That's the problem with that. So... You could talk historically that there was rights and the British made this and that and the other, whatever. As a matter of fact, according to those rights, that was the whole point of the film, is the West Bank also belongs to Israel, because that's what they gave them then in 1922 in the San, San Remo uh, conference. But the problem with that, that argument is that they can take it away. If God created the world and he creates all the limitations of the world, he could change those limitations. So if there's a contradiction between the world and what God tells us to do, is it a real contradiction? No. God could make miracles, right? Not that he performs miracles all the time, but he could. Text number eight, I'm not going to read it. But it's a basic, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, you'll read it later yourself. It's a reading from Samson or Fulhersh. Who says, why is it that the first Jew born as a Jew, who's the first born, Jew born as a Jew? No, he wasn't born as a Jew. Isaac. Why did he have to be born to a man of a hundred and a woman of ninety? And then his whole life is a question. He doesn't have children and then he's, he's brought up as an, to the altar and he's almost gone. That's the whole the Jewish people coming from something that seems not just dramatic, um, it seems impossible. Supernatural in a sense. Because we, because the Jewish people, you know, if you look at the, in the mezuzah, or even in the Chumash, or sometimes in the Siddur, when you say Shema Yisrael Hashem Malakeinu Hashem Creed of Judaism, Hero Israel, the God, Lord of God, Lord of God, the Shin, I'm sorry, the, the, the Ayin of Shema and the Dalad of Echad are larger. Why are they larger? They make a word together. What word do they make? Aid, which means witness, testimony. We are testimony to God. 
Why are we testimony to God? If we exist because Isaac was born from a man of a hundred and a woman of ninety, and then every significant event in Jewish history happened in that, in that way, right? We left Egypt with miracles. We received the law, the Torah, with divine revelation, another miracle. We went into Israel, a miracle. Every holiday we celebrate represents miracles. What is a miracle? Miracle is God knocking on the world say, hey, I'm here. You know? I'm the one who created you. I exist. So this is the God, the, the create, uh, this is the perspective from the, re- the creation perspective. This world is real, created by God. So is the world real? Yes, but. But what? It's dependent on God's existence. God, it's, it, its existence is dependent on God. God created it. <coughs> Alright? Okay? You got this? So we have the Exodus, and we have the Revelation at Sinai. Um, and this is why prayer. What's prayer? What is prayer? From a worldly perspective, does prayer make sense? From a worldly reality, does prayer make sense? Things are the way they are. You're sick? Too bad. Bad luck. You don't, you don't, have, uh, you don't have money? Go and work harder. Maybe you'll make money. But what are you praying for? From a worldly reality, prayer makes no sense. From a creative reality, prayer says that God created the world. And because he created the world, he could also make, answer your prayers. Now, how he wants to do it is his business. I mean, he can do it in a way that is miraculous. He can do it in a way we, it's, it's enclosed in nature. But the fascinating thing is that prayer is the, is the way we bring a change to, to the world more than any other mitzvah. The sick gets healed if the prayer is answered, right? The sick is getting healed. And so on and so forth. There's, there's no rain? There's rain through prayer. What does that mean? That you're changing changing laws of nature, it looks like. That's the message of prayer. So, it doesn't make sense, really, to pray and to not have this created, at least this creation um, perspective. The created perspective, right? If you have a worldly perspective... That you, what, you have no business praying. So it changes our reality. Mitzvot change world, change uh, worldly reality as well. It's they transform it. So is creation real? Yes, but it's cre- it's real because it fulfills the Creator's purpose in creation. And. No, we can't just pray and then God hit me with it. you got to go into the world and make things happen. You pray and then you go find your best doctor. You pray and then you go to work. Right? So there is, there is the world as we know it. But we do not allow the limitations of the world to dictate our values. 
With me? Yes. Correct. No, I'm just going through the four models of reality. Yes. Now this model, which we're calling the um, the creation model, is the perspective of 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 uh, Jewish perspective in general, or really, it's it's the believer's perspective. Most believers, this is their perspective. There's a God who created the world, and therefore, He is not only the Beide Elam Uman Higoi, He runs the world. Of course, the worldly reality is hard, but I'm. Well, like. Okay. Okay. So the the the, we but we also brought the problems of the worldly reality. We have the problems of worldly reality. First of all, there is no certainty, and second of all, it it makes life devoid of meaning and purpose. And well, or it was revealed to us, right? Okay, now it gets uh, really uh, interesting. Now, so is the world real, as we said? The answer is, from the perspective of the creation reality, yes, but. Okay? What do you mean, yes, but? It is an expression of God created it. So it's real, but it's kind of dependent on God. Okay, you know when when the previous Rebbe was taken for questioning at at one point, the the, the you know, we all know the Babacher Rebbe, his father-in-law was taken in the Soviet Union, um, who tried to squish Judaism. He was taken for questioning. Um, this was uh, 1922 or something like that, 23, 24. Not not his ultimate imprisonment, but earlier. And he had a philosophy that he was not going to allow them to make him feel any less than that, that he, they are in charge of him. So he wouldn't answer questions if they didn't give him his tefillin, or he would answer in Yiddish, even though he knew Russian. Um, anyway, they got a little bit uh, frustrated with him. And one guy gets and says, you see this gun? Picks up a gun. You see this gun? This gun has made many people start singing, you know? Are talking. So the previous Rebbe says, that gun only works with someone who has many gods and one world. I have one god and two worlds. It doesn't work with me. What's he saying? He's saying, someone who has a worldly perspective, right? A worldly, rea- worldly reality, the gun is going to help because he doesn't want to leave this world. But someone who has a creation reality, that there's a god and there's two worlds, you're not going to scare me. If God wants you to use the gun, it will happen. If he doesn't, no matter what you want, what, no matter what you do, it's not going to, it's not going to help you anyway. So this, isn't that a deterministic view? That, it's, that that's 
Ah, okay. Very good. Very good. Very good. So for that, you have halacha. Okay, you have Jewish law. So Jewish law tells you when you have to take into account what the world is saying, etc. And when you... And when you... So for example, you know, if I can't have... My business can't work without Shabbos. Jewish, there's only one way to desecrate Shabbos, and that's for life. Life and death. But if it's not life and death, it's business... You don't desecrate Shabbos, for example. Um, that's halacha. Aye, how are you going to live? Well, many people were able to live with keeping Shabbos. Because God is in charge of the world at the end of the day. Okay. Um, by the way, I want to I bring up something, yeah, um, something else that, about the worldly reality. Fascinating. Today you're hearing a, a principle that um, some people say that because of climate change, we should have fewer children. You ever heard of that? Well, those people argue that you have fewer children because of the problem of climate change. But that's not new. 200 years ago, Thomas Malthus, yeah, he, uh, he came up with the principle of Malthusian catastrophe. He figured out that based on the amount of food that there was in the world, if there is going to be a population growth, there will be starvation. And so therefore, for the, for the sake of, of humanity, you should not have children. He was actually a priest. And based on the knowledge he had then, that was absolutely true. But the fact is, when he came up with this, the world had 800 million people. Today, we have 7.8 billion more than nine times the, the time when he said that. And we have plenty of food. As a matter of fact, today we have more food than ever. That according to science, that's distribution is another issue. But the fact is we have two to three times the amount of food we need to feed humanity. Why? Because science has come up with uh, better fertilizers and uh, ways of fertilization and things of that nature that allow, that allow us to, to grow more food. So he, from a worldly reality... Malthusen said, it's impossible that we should have a population growth and not have famines because of it. That was his, his way of seeing things. But then all of a sudden, <laughs> it's not what happened. Well, he was right in his perspective, but he didn't take into account the scientific discovery. Your, his assumption was that there's this amount of food production possible, but his assumption was correct. It was correct at the time. But it wasn't wasn't correct going into the future. Right. Correct. So you have to, when, you, when you make that kind of proposition, you have to, you're supposed to state what your assumptions are up front. Right. But that's, that's the case in the people actually in their own, on their own lives. People decide, I could only have two, three children, for example, because of my finances, blah, blah. People always come up with these. That's the worldly reality. From a, from a creation reality, you say, hold on, like the Talmud says, the one who gives life gives food, or the way the man the one who gives life is if if God is able to give life, He's able to give food. So that's creation creation reality it gives you a different perspective on this, and you see it, you see it practically. Um, they make it happen. All right, um, let's move along. Now we go on 
Oh boy. Okay. Now we go on to the next level. The next level is the godly reality. Okay. What did we say? Creation is something from nothing. nothing. Who are we calling nothing? <laughs> Who are we calling nothing? Is God nothing? So what does it mean creation is something from nothing? It's not nothing. God is the true something, isn't it? Right? So, we have as follows. There's a verse. And the verse says, it's a verse in Samuel. Kale Deus Hashem. God is a God of perspectives. There's two perspectives. There's our perspective and God's perspective. Okay? Our perspective and God's perspective. No, that's not the time. Um, that's right, twice a day. Um, so there's our perspective and God's perspective. Our perspective is we are something and what precedes us is nothing. And God's perspective is He is something and we are nothing. Now what does it mean? Let's first read it in text number 9. It is written, God is the God of minds. This is a text from the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek. So now we get into the Hasidic perspective. Till now was the basic Classic Jewish perspective, creative reality. That's the classic Jewish perspective. Now we're moving on to the Hasidic perspective. Okay. It is written, God is the God of minds. This implies the existence of two minds, i.e. two perspectives on reality. The first mind is that God is the true reality, and all that is here below is regarded as naught, as it is nothing but a reflection of God's reality. It is therefore called nothing, as was explained in earlier discourse regarding the meaning of the verse, there is none else. This is God's mind, how it is from God's perspective. I'll explain in a moment. The second mind is how it appears from, from the perspective of the creations. To them, it seems that they are real and something and something. They describe the creation of the world as something from nothing, meaning that godliness is nothing and is not graspable and the creations are real and something. Okay. So let's, let's start with the second part first. What do we mean that we are something from nothing? Why nothing? Because... Something has to have limits. For us, anything for us to, anything to be meaningful to us, it has to have limits, right? If I'm going, to, I'm going to give you an infinite table, what are you going to do with it? What could you do with an infinite table? What's it made of anyway? If it's made of wood, it's not infinite anymore. So, what could we do with something infinite? Nothing. We can't relate to any something infinite, actually. Anything infinite is not a thing. So, therefore, nothing. It's not a thing for us. So, in other words, it's beyond our capacity to comprehend and to relate to. That's what it means, something from nothing. We are something from a thing that is just so vast, so beyond us, that we can't relate to it. Is that just a bad word? For this purpose? It's not a thing, is what we're trying to say. Right? It's not something that... It's nothing in our world. And actually, in the exact same way, we're going to have to see from God's perspective. We'll still see. That's right. Exactly. Mathematicians 
find that it helps science a lot to extrapolate things to the infinite. And then, then you can engineer and technology comes uh, we on we can extend our, our science um, and technology and the development of things that have never been seen before through engineering using a calculus. Calculus is, is, is like a science of, of uh, Okay, David, infin- I th- using infin- uh, I think it would become quite involved. We could talk about it after the class. Okay. Um, so you get this part? What's something for nothing from us? Nothing means not a thing. Right? It's beyond our capacity to comprehend. Right? So to grasp, grasp something, we have to grasp something only by recognizing its limits. Only if it has limits could we grasp it. Alright? Okay. Um, so from our perspective, God is nothing. In the same way, in the same way, from God's perspective, we're nothing. What does it mean from God's perspective, we're nothing? He is infinite, we're finite. What's finite compared to infinite? So let's let's listen, use a mathematical equation if you like. What is closer to a million? One or two? Two, two is closer to a million than one. What is closer to infinity? One or a million? The same. The same. They're both zero. Right? To infinity, zero and, and a million is the same. If God is infinite and we're finite, then we're nothing. But to say that you're finite is to say that you're something. If in God's world of the, of infinity, that's I'm using. Let, let's flip the coin, okay? We're saying God is infinite. That's for sure something. But to us, from our to our perspective, it's nothing, right? Let's flip it to God's perspective. He's the something, and we're the nothing. Why? Because he's infinite, and we're finite. To our perspective, we're finite, he's infinite. That's why we're saying it's something from nothing as well. I can see how that means that we're nothing important, but then we mean that we're nothing important. He's so much more real than we are. Okay, let me put. Okay, let's 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 explain it a little bit more. <coughs> if you went to a movie let's say, into a movie theater. How do they project onto the wall? They have a projector, right? Mm-hmm. So have this big projectors and they project <coughs> lights on the wall. Let's say you're in a movie that is 3D and sound, surround sound, and it's like maybe even the holograms or whatever. And you're looking at it and it seems 100%, it seems real, right? And you feel that it's, it's, a, real, it's a reality happening in front of you. In reality, all it is is a projection of lights. All it is is a projection of light. That's what the world is to God. We we are projection of His light. The whole and whole existence is a projection of godly light. That's right. Very good. You got it. We are projection of his light. So what? What is our true existence? His light. 
then we're really, we're really nothing. Okay, hold on a second. From our perspective, from his perspective, we're nothing. This is what we have here in reading number 10. This is from the Altar Rebbe in, in Tanya, chapter 3 of the second port of Tanya. The fact that every creation and event appears to us as something and as tangible is only because we do not grasp and see with our eyes of flesh the divine energy and divine utterance within each creation. But if the eye were allowed to see and apprehend the divine vitality and spirituality being infused into every creation, the physicality, materiality, and substance of that creation would be utterly invisible to us. You get it? Able to get it? Is it... If we get a little too deep, the Altarebbe would say to his grandson, before he passed away, he said, you see a beam, I see the divine energy that's bringing it into existence. That's a level. Okay? It's not something easy for us. What do we do to get to this level? We close it, we say Shema Yisrael. Why do we close our eyes and we say Shema Yisrael? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Lekein, Hashem Why do we close our eyes? We're saying, God, we're trying to see things from your perspective. Hey, let me let me explain what's going on over here. When you have two perspectives, let's say you have a de- debate, a discussion, or argument, and now you're trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. So what are you going to do? If I want to see things in your perspective, I'm going to have to put my perspective aside. I'll put my perspective aside to be able to see the world and reality from your perspective. And then I can bring my perspective back into the picture. But the first thing is, I have to kind of ignore my perspective to see things from your perspective. We have this debate, so to speak, between us and God. So we go, Shema Yisrael Hashem I'm going to now try to see things in God's perspective. That we are but an reflection of His life. That's all we are. In other words, we're not a thing in ourselves. We're just God's reflection of God's life. Now, it's not possible to live our life fully like this. Because... I feel myself, I sense myself, I feel the world. I mean, there's a created being here. From the created reality, it's easy. Created reality, easier at least. Created reality means, yes, God created me, but I exist. I am. And yes, I don't have to be contradictory to God, but I still am. From God's perspective of reality, all I am is a reflection of His light. All I am is that light on the computer screen. That's my existence. What does that, how does that affect you if you had that perspective of life? I think you're very powerful. How does that perspective of life affect you? Sorry? Well, the reflection of God and, and, and God created you to have a certain, uh, perspective. Um, not a certain perspective, certain, conduct yourself in a certain way. You cannot act contrary to that. It, that would be probably more of a right. How could you be? On the contrary, you're looking at the world that the world is not nothing. That any any limitation that the world offers, it's not real. There was a there's a chassid. He was I remember Binyamin Klutzka, I think his name was a chassid Alter Rebbe. So he wrote he would write um, a calculation. So he wrote this this amount of money, this amount of money, and the bottom line, nothing but God. That's what he wrote. There's nothing except for God. 
In other words, his perspective, he was so imbued with this idea. If you meditate and learn about this until it, it, it seeps into your, your guts and your kishkes, that you could actually relate to this perspective, that has a massive impact on how you see the world, how you see the, yourself within the world. Make sense? You get it? That if you could actually see yourself as only a light emanating from God, then any problem I have is not really a problem. Now, as I said, it's hard to live with that. So from this perspective, is the world real? No. Right? From this perspective, there's no real. Not real. Now, the fact that we have the ability to actually relate to this perspective, we see here in text number 11. Now we say, we concede to you. Okay, we know, we daven, shvanesrei, right? I say, moidim. Right? We, the, the pray, how many times do we bow in, in the Amidah, you know? Um, four. Close. Four. Two blessings. The beginning of what? So we don't always bow. What's bowing mean? There's 18, 19 benedictions. We only bow in two of them. Beginning and the end of them. So what's bowing mean? Respect. Respect. It's more than respect. It's subservience. Right? It's subservience. When do we bow? When we say, Moidim. What's Moidim mean? I acknowledge. I'm subservient. I am kind of acknowledging that God's perspective is the right perspective. Now when you acknowledge, it's not fully, I don't fully comprehend it, but I know that you're God. You must be right. You're God. You created this reality. In other words, even from our perspective, right? We have the perspective that God created us. So we sense ourselves as real. God created us. I'm created being. I'm real. But you have to at least understand that from God's perspective, who created you just admitted He created you. Right? You have a perspective that God created the world. God created me from the creation reality, right? From creation reality, you are admitting to the fact that God created you, right? So, how, so then, could you think for a second? Okay, so how is it from the perspective of Him who created me? Yeah? It's the next step. That's the natural next step. If I believe there's a God who created me, so now I could start saying, okay, so what is, how, how do I, how am I from His perspective? You know, it's like the the joke of the of the uh, cu- couple who were dating, and one guy was didn't stop talking about himself. And then finally, after half hour, he says to her, "You know, enough me talking about me. Now tell me, what do you think of me?" <laughs> <laughs> so the same thing. We we speak about ourselves, right? No, okay, God created me. Now, God, let me see things and how. Right. Or the other way around, right? We see things from, how does God see me? Right? So, the way I see me, creation reality, the way I see me, God created me. Okay, now how am I from the way God sees me? But from the way God sees me, I'm just a reflection of Him. A minute reflection of Him, right? So this is how, what we acknowledge. Now we say we concede to you, meaning we concede that the truth is how it is from God's perspective, obviously. If I believe that there's two perspectives, if I'm in the world of reality, okay, there's no God in the equation. Forget that. That's not, 
But once we start the process, and we're on to the creation reality, so there is a God who's creating me, then obviously there's his perspective, and whose perspective is correct. It's, it's obvious. The fact that the world and all it contains appears to be real and something, this is only due to the constrictions, which we call tzimtzumim in Kabbalah, which means constrictions, and concealments, as it is written, God hides himself. It is by means of this constriction that a created being, thing appears to be something. And these constrictions generate the second mind, meaning our perspective. Yet the constrictions are only from our perspective. From God's perspective, the constrictions are not real at all. Hence the truth is that it is from God's perspective, which is the higher mind. Thus we say, we concede. So is the world real? From, we just said, from the God's re- reality, the world is not real. So, So we have the godly perspective, which is nothing from something. We have creation perspective, something from nothing. And we can see to you. Alright, so from this perspective, if the world is real, no. Okay. Now. And we have this in reality, throughout our reality, we have what we might call the front end and the back end, right? So, so, um, in software, you have the I, the back end is the software developer, and the front end is the, the user. The there's the doctor who's or, or, or the researcher is able to find um, uh, the doctor prescribes medicines, the researcher invents new cures, and there's the patient who only could take the medicines, right? There's the writer, the director, and the actors, and then there's the readers and the audience. Back end, front end, right? So generally, where do we live? We live in the creation reality. That's where we live. We live on the front end. Um, now, if there's an electrical problem, you call the you call the electrician. You can't deal with it yourself. Um, now, so we live. Now, there's another thing we're gonna. The last thing we're gonna say. So, what could be higher than what could be greater than the godly perspective? How are we gonna go beyond that? So we're going to another level called the unified reality. Where we combine our perspective and God's perspective and unite it as one. What does that mean? What does that mean? We say because He's the one who made us. He made us, right? He's the one who makes the constrictions. So let's, let's, let's move away for a moment. We have the world of parable, or allegory. Heard a beautiful example for this. So it used to be, we have someone at the space station, they need a wrench. They don't have a wrench, what do you do? They have to send up a rocket ship with a wrench. They have to wait for the next rocket ship to come up. What do they have today? What do they do today? 3D printers. 3D printers, very good, exactly. They send, a, they take the wrench, and make it a bunch of zeros and ones, email it up, and then they're able to print it, in the space station, space station, they're able to print that wrench. And now, whoop, they have a wrench. If you were stuck in necessarily sending only a wrench, not zeros and ones, 
what would happen? You have to wait until they, until they come, otherwise you're not going to get the wrench. What is this? T- this is the concept of parable. What's parable? Parable or, or allegory? I want to explain one thing, but instead of explaining it to you as it is, what I'm going to do? I'm going to use a parable, which is I'm going to send you a bunch of zeros and ones, in order for you then to take the zeros and ones and make them into a wrench again. Why do we do this? Because basically, if I'm trying to teach you something that is beyond your capacity or, or outside of your world of experience, outside of your normal way of thinking and seeing things, if I'm going to come and tell it to you as it is, boom, 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 the whole time, tell you exactly what I want to say, I'm not, I'm not going to get anywhere. You're not going to understand what I'm trying to say. It's actually going to annoy you. What do I do? I find something that you relate to. Something in your world that you could relate to. And then, I, I place what I want to teach and the idea I want to give into a foreign world. And then, you, I teach it to you, and then you can take that from that foreign world and understand what I wanted to tell you. So, I don't know, let's take our animal farm. Or Dr. Seuss, or the Bible, if you'd like, right? But the Bible is also real, so it's not just allegory. But let's say Animal Farm. So let's learn, we can read it on four different levels. Level number one is a preschooler. Just sees it as a book with pictures and, and, and letters it doesn't understand. Level number two is a child who reads a story. What is he? Reads a story, a cute story about a bunch of animals and, and rising up against their human, um, Carers or whatever. You become an adult, what do you see? Political allegory. An allegory to much deeper ideas, right? To much deeper ideas. In a sense, we could say that this is an example of the different worlds that we spoke till now. The world of reality, you see, you see a world. You see a bunch of uh, letters in a, it's a physical book. The created reality, as you see a world created by God, but it's a story. It's it's an intelligent story created by God, but it's a story. The godly reality is that it's just an allegory for something God wants to teach us. The whole world is just an allegory, so to speak, of God. You get the idea? It's a riddle. It's more, more than a riddle. What God is trying to do is place is in the creation of the world, he gives us, is a parable to do what? A parable for him. For us to appreciate God. Or godliness. You get the idea? Let's read it inside. Text number 13. This will be in the stupid way of example of the case of a great sage who needs to transmit an idea to a minor student whose intellect is many levels lower than that of the teacher. If the teacher were to reveal the depth and breadth of the idea as he has it, the student's faculties would be confused and he would not be able to receive anything at all. So the teacher needs to contract and conceal the full depth of breadth of his wisdom in this idea and to dress it and conceal it within a parable. The parable is something that is completely foreign to the idea so it covers it and conceals it like a garment covers that which is within it. 
But it is by the means of the parable that the student will grasp the idea and understand it because the parable corresponds to the idea. Right? Through Animal Farm, you're having this political uh, um, discussion, right? Or Dr. Seuss's books, as we said. Or this, you read the story of Joseph. You read it as a kid, you see it one way. You read it as an adult, you see much deeper layers of meaning. So, what are your, um, so here gives examples of, 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 uh, of different parables. What's the advantage of using a parable? What is the advantage of using a parable? Makes the complex idea simpler. Exactly, very good. You're packaging the idea uh, in terminology that the student is able to understand. And it bridges the ideological divide. So, here's, a, here's three do's and don'ts in parables, okay? First of all, you have to bring it down to the level of the student. If the parable itself will be beyond the student's capacity to understand, you haven't achieved anything. Right? Obvious. So it has to be within the perspective of the student. Um... Okay, so it's got to be brought down. So you take two apples, for example, right? If you want to teach a child, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You don't tell them 2 plus 2 equals 4, you tell them 2 apples, plus 2 apples equals 4 apples. Did the child get 2 plus 2 equals 4? Not necessarily. He knows. If you said if it was pears, I don't know. I know 2 apples and 2 apples are 4 apples. I don't know about pears. But what happens ultimately, he understands, not just apples. You gave an example of apples, but it's really everything. But the first thing he knows, he doesn't know everything. He just knows two apples and two apples are four apples. You ever try this? Fun. Try it with a kid. Just learn math. How much is two apples and two apples for? Okay, then ask him how much is two pears and two pears. You'll see, well, they won't know because they have a hard time in, in what, what they call in, um, in, no, it's not the, what the word I'm looking for is. Uh, okay, it's not what the word I'm looking for. But anyway, um, yeah, extrapolating. It's not the word I'm looking for either. But that's correct. So that's number one. Number two, don't bring it down too much, because if you're going to bring it down too much, what's going to happen? Oh, that's all you're telling me. Okay, you're not going to see anything deeper. Right? You're not going to see a deeper idea there. You're going to see the thing itself. In order for you to see that there's something deeper in it, I have to leave some mystery. I have to leave so that you kind of actually look at it and see. Ah, and you see, what's, what's hidden here? If it's a simple story, I don't see anything hidden. But if it's, there's this complexity to the story, then I start seeing, what, what, what's he trying to teach here? Yeah, the, the brain is going to look at it and say, there's something, there's a d- deeper message here. And it has to be multi-layered. In other words, I will see it at the a- age of 20 in one way. I'll go, at the age of 30, I'll see it a different way. And at 40, even, not different way, but deeper way and a deeper way. I'll constantly be able to see the, I'll take the allegory, right? I'll take the example, and I'll be able to const- go back to it 
And every time I go back to it, I see much deeper layers of meaning in it. That's what the Torah is. And the Torah is actually called God's parable. You go into the Torah, and each time you see the Torah, you're actually seeing things in a much, you could see things deeper layers and layers and layers. Now, it's not only deeper layers of, of things that, that is in the worldly reality, or in the or created reality, it's actually deeper layers about God himself. So you want to prompt the students to continue to search. The multi-layered reality makes that happen. So now, we're saying God is the parable maker. He needs to understand both sides. Right? In other words, what we're saying is like this. In, when God looks at the parable, does he see a story? Does he know the entire depth of the idea? This is, I, I'm the student. I read the story. I'm the five-year-old who sees the two plus two equals four. Two apples and two apples is four apples. Right? That's all I see. The teacher sees what? The theory that two and two equals four. Right? The teacher is not stuck in the apples. The student is stuck in the apples. The teacher sees, sees the, 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 the depth. The, the, te- the student is stuck in the example. The teacher see, has the theory. No matter how deep it is, if I'm the one who created the parable, then, then the entire depth of what the ta- parable is presenting, I got it. I'm the, if I'm the teacher, I have the entire depth of my idea in the parable. parable doesn't hide it from me, hides it from him, the student maybe, but not from the teacher, right? So, but on the other hand, he made the, he wrote the parable. In other words, he's the master of both infinity, which is the idea being presented, and the finitude, which is the, which is the parable as the student sees it. He made, he made me see things from my perspective. Who gave me my perspective? God did. Right? He gives us our perspective that, that this, we're the something and he's the nothing, so to speak. So he allows us, he wants us to combine these two perspectives, which we'll explain in a moment. Um, so we have three truths that we want to come here with, come out with this idea of these, these parables. Number one, the concealment is only one-sided, which I just explained, right? It's only from the students. So we won't have to do the reading. You can read it yourself. So the parable is like a one-way glass. It's the one-way glass for the student, not for the, not for the teacher. Number two, the concealment is actually a limited revelation. You get that? You get that? The concealment is actually a revelation. The parable that conceals is really a revelation because ultimately the student will be able to understand that two plus two equals four. Period. To use that simple example. You with me? Let's see, in text number 15. It's not. In truth, for the student too, this isn't the true concealment. Because without this constriction and concealment, the light of the idea would not have reached him at all. For as we said, if the teacher were to reveal to the student the full depth of his wisdom, as he was has it, the student's faculties would be completely confused. But by means of these constrictions, the light of the idea illuminates the student's mind. So it is not a true concealment. So the parable isn't a concealment at all, actually, or not a full concealment. 
So if you're blinded, you have a blinding light, and someone puts on a pair of glasses, uh, sunglasses, which conceal 90% of the light, and now you're able to see. Is it concealment or revelation? It's both. It's both, but in truth, it's revelation. In order to reveal, you have to conceal. But but it was in order for you to be able to see something. So the parable that God gives us is the pair of sunglasses he's giving us. And without the concealment, without the parable, we'd get nothing. Now the third point is the concealment is actually a full revelation, not just a partial revelation. Why? Text number 16. Ultimately also, the inner depth of the teacher's idea is revealed to the student. For as the sages said, a person does not attain his teacher's mind until 40 years. 40 years after you learn from your teacher, if it's a proper teacher-student relationship, you could actually get what the teacher meant. Implying that after 40 years, it does attain it. The reason for this is that, as we explained, although the teacher transmits a condensed form of the idea to the student, it nevertheless contains in hidden form the full depth of his wisdom. It is only that what is revealed to the student is, is its external aspect, while the essence of the wisdom is hidden by the teacher within the details of the, and the wording. Therefore, after the student receives the teachings and absorbs it, when he later examines the details and the wording and toils with this, Guided by what he received in a revealed way, he will reach the depth of the inner intent and the essential wisdom as it was in the teacher's mind before the teacher constricted it for the purpose of teaching it. You with me? You got this? So, in the parable, the teacher put the entire depth of the idea. To the teacher, it's not hidden. He sees it all the time. To the student, it's hidden. But the more you you relate to it, the more you get, ah, you finally, ah, this is what he meant. Ah, this is what he meant. Right? This is what happens. Ultimately, you relearn it again. Ah, this is what he meant. And as you get older and more mature and more learned, you go back to it, especially if he actually put everything into it, as God is able to do. We go, ah, this is what he meant. And that's what we're able to see. So in his concealment to us, he actually embedded revelation of himself so that we're actually able to come see things from his perspective but that's the unification what so what helps us see things from his perspective our perspective our perspective is the parable that allows us to see things from his perspective hence we come to the following conclusion the concealment as we said is one-sided it's only from our perspective it's limited revelation actually full revelation and so, is the world real? Well, the world of reality we had was, yes. From a creation reality, yes, but. Godly reality, no. But again, from the unified reality, it is. It's once again surreal, right? Because God created this reality in order to embed himself within us. So what's the takeaway here? I want to give you a, a, a There's two names of God. Hashem and Elohim. There's more. But there's two most famous names of God. Hashem and Elohim, right? We say Hashem, Elohim. Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elohim. We make a bracha. Baruch Atah, Hashem, Elohim. We have these two names of God. When we talked about creation, which, which word, name of God did we use? Elohim, right? Bereshish bara, Elohim. Many times the Torah we use the word Hashem, or Yudke Vavke, right? It's called Hashem. These two names of God 
present two dimensions of godliness. Elohim is God as he is enclosed in nature. And Hashem is God as he is in himself, so to speak, as he is beyond nature. What does it mean when we say Hashem will look in the end of Yom Kippur and the end of one's life, practically? The last thing we say is Hashem Hu Elohim. We pronounce scream and shout. Remember? Hashem Hu Elohim. Hashem Hu Elohim. Hashem Hu Elohim. What are we saying? God is the Lord. What does that mean? The hero Israel. Hero is means you have to concentrate, concentrate something deep. Telling you a new idea. What? The Lord is our God. What does that mean? The Lord is our God. Do you ever think about it? What does the Lord is our God mean? So, I'm, I'm, it's a, it was a rhetorical question because <laughs> we got to end. What does the Lord is our God mean? The Lord is our God means Elohim is God in nature. Right? Is the creation reality. Hashem is the godly reality as he's beyond the world. So you should know that Hashem who Elohim, that do not think that this kind of a, a, a division here, that there's the godliness of nature and this God as he's beyond nature. No. Within nature, within the world, he embeds his very essence. Hashem embeds his very essence. That's the point of the parable. The very essence of Hashem is embedded in nature. What's the takeaway? The big takeaway is this. There could be a few takeaways, but I'm going to say one. Very important. Life's challenges. When we look at life's challenges, if God wants me to do this mitzvah, why is He making it so difficult? If God wants me to keep the Shabbos, why does it look like I can't earn a living if I do and so on and so forth, right? I mean, there's uh, various um, ways of seeing this, right? Why, does that, why these frustrations? Why these tests? If God wants me to do it, why is He making it hard on me? If He wants, you know, it looks like I have to cheat in business in order to make a living. Why? So, the answer to that is, these challenges prod us to look deeper. Challenges, if you didn't, the challenges prod us to see, where's the hand of God here? You're looking deeper in the parable to see the godliness in that reality as well. If it was, if you didn't have the challenge, you wouldn't look deeper. Isn't that the fact of life? How often is it only the challenges that pushes us to look in a particular direction? If everything is smooth and cozy, we just we we get used to the the norm and we don't look deeper. We don't see God. We just see whatever nature. It is those challenges that kind of allow us to see the par- the parable of God's existence within with the, that is that is. Uh, that's there. Like in that, like in that nine dot thing, if we, if we could have done it and, uh, simply as a square. That's right. You'd never go beyond the line. We wouldn't have looked further. That's right. So this, the enigmatic and challenging details are the parable.
What's going on here, right? So look at these. <laughs> we have two figures here. If you look at uh, page 29, figure 1.7a. You see anything there? Does that say anything to you? You've seen it before? Okay, so you see it's a hodgepodge. You don't see anything. But after you will see the answer on page 235, go to two. Oh, you don't have 235, do you? Oh, you do you? I'll show you my. Can you see it now? Hmm? You see it? You see it's a cow. It's a bull's or cow's head over a fence. Now look back. I'm telling you it's a cow's head over a fence. Can you see it? Do you see it now? You see that? Now you look at it. If I'm telling you it's a cow's head, um, then you can see it, right? Otherwise you see black and white. Once... So when we're faced with a challenge, we start seeing the cow.